Hello, hello, hello. So before I go into the next episode of the podcast, I'm really excited to announce that the new intake for the Female Fat Loss Program is now open. So it will be starting on the 7th of August. And it's perfect if you are just coming back from holidays and ready to kind of get back into things and the swing of things just before the school starts. So if you are interested in it, so it involves a six-week program, You'll get tailored calories, tailored programs with workout videos. You will have a Facebook group Facebook group to keep you accountable. You'll have me to keep you accountable. You'll have weekly check-ins. You will have weekly lives with me and that will answer your questions and Q&As. And it's amazing. And there's no foods off limits there. We're literally working for a weekly calorie average. So it's an amazing program and the, the, how good it's been since we started, since I started launching it is to say that 50% of those who've come from and that's at this date is that people who started up in June, 50% of those are going into the August one already. So that's saying that it is, and that's that's only halfway through. So those 50% have, have renewed. So that's how amazing the results have been so far. So if you're interested in working with me in a in the female fat loss program starting on the 7th of August, the price is 169. So 169 for six weeks and the the link is in the write-up and we're starting on the 7th of august and everything will be sent over to you the friday beforehand looking forward to seeing you there if you do sign up you won't regret it sarah Anne, how are we i'm really well thanks shane how are you very good thank you happy friday yeah happy friday <laughs> uh, thank you so much for coming on i know you are very very busy because i know that the podcast has gone to face to face which is a big undertaking so a massive congratulations on the growth of the podcast as well thank you thanks so much yeah it's been a really exciting last season and um as you said it's really taking up a year but it's been really great it's been so much um excitement around meeting people face to face especially post covid yeah, <laughs> back in real time but it's interesting because we go to people's houses now so there's a whole different dimension than when you're meeting someone in their home because I feel they really open up and you get so much more of an essence of of who that person really is as opposed to to being in a studio so it's been it's been a really interesting series that's amazing um and for anyone that isn't aware of who you are and your background and stuff because it is a very unique kind of (laughs) avenue you've taken to get to where you are so can you explain kind of like your background and how you got kind of got into this field yeah of course yeah it's definitely um an interesting journey I'd say so I started off modeling when I was 15 I was really young um very excited I always wanted to be a photographer so actually to be on the other side of the lens was, was, was not what I expected um and then I I finished my sixth form and begged my parents if I could go to London and and try full time because in between those moments I was getting you know maybe a job for Burberry but my mum wouldn't let me do it in the, when school was on so I had to do it in school holidays or go up on the weekends and there was all this kind of to and fro of how often I could do it she said when you're 18 if you get good good um sixth form results then then you can make the choice and you can go and do modeling so obviously the day my exam finished I was like right I'm off um moved to London I was from Portsmouth very different moved straight into Brixton and from there I had quite a successful modeling career I lived in Paris and then I went to New York for five years and my whole world just changed you know I was open to so many different people cultures conversations um obviously everyone was a lot older than me because I was very young and it was in that moment where 
I think when you're very young or very susceptible to the world around you and you're very naive, and I was definitely quite naive coming from Portsmouth. And I don't think I realized how much of heavy influence the industry had on me. Um, you know, obviously to look a certain way, to be a certain way, you're around different people every single day. You don't have, you know, when you're 18, you might go to university or start a job when you have a heavy routine or you see people day in, day out. Um, and for me, that wasn't the case. I was on a plane five times a week. Um, you know, I never saw the same face the next day unless it was my agent who I really spoke to only on the phone. Um, so you're kind of just like placed in these different scenarios. So you've got to be very good at speaking to people and adapting very quickly. And you have to have big resilience because you might see 18 people in one day for a casting and you might be dismissed 18 times. So it's like going for 18 interviews a day and then them saying no, but actually telling you why to your face because it's part of your body. And so it's very interesting as a young adult when you're kind of not talk, talked about, you know, emotional resilience or even how to look after yourself. Um, and so for me, obviously, that had a really big impact, you know, five, six years later down the line. I didn't kind of feel myself anymore. I felt quite empty. I definitely felt lonely, but I'd never been able to identify that that was an actual thing. You know, you kind of know that you feel lonely, but that emptiness is a really strange thing to understand because that's been my norm for so long. And it was during this time in New York where social media was launching, you know, Instagram was just coming out. And it wasn't used as a marketing tool then. It was basically just used as what people were doing day to day. But then the wellness industry started to appear. And something that I realized from living in New York is they're five years ahead of London. Like everything kind of comes there first. And then it comes drip feeds into London. And for, for that moment, it was the wellness movement. Everyone was talking about fitness classes, spin classes in like, you know, in rave setting and green juices and, and kale was already appearing and whole foods was huge. And I was like, wow, okay, well, this is obviously what it, you know, how you look great because I've been around an industry that doesn't, you know, look at food and doesn't, you know, talk about it. And it's a bit of a demon and it's a bit of a, you know, quite stigmatized if you eat if you eat lots of food and all these kind of conversations. So for me, I kind of jumped on that bandwagon. I just realized I was so misinformed. And at that moment realized I was probably around everyone in a mental health crisis. Everyone in the industry, you know, felt so low, felt so lonely. Everybody was struggling with social comparison. And when you strip it back, it's completely understandable as why but there was always an elephant in the room. And that led me on a really interesting journey to then want to go and study nutrition, actually leave New York, leave my agency, probably at like one of the highest points in my career, shooting for huge household names, um, which led to them actually saying, well, we're going to drop you because if you're going to be in the UK studying, then you're not going to be here working for us. And so that was a very hard move for me to make one that I questioned very heavily and everyone around me questioned including my including my parents because by this point I had a mortgage I bought a house in London all these overheads where then I was going to go back to being a student and paying huge tuition fees um and at that moment although nutrition is huge now as you know and probably many of your listeners who are really engaged in it, nobody spoke about nutrition 10 years ago. No. Nobody even knew what a nutritionist was. I remember saying to my dad, I'm going to go inside a human nutrition and become a registered nutritionist. And he was like, what is that? Like no one knew what it was. So it felt like I was probably having a midlife crisis when I was 24. Um, but for me, that was something where I felt that I needed to access for myself because I've just been reading so many 
poor articles, magazines, wellness blogs that were actually just really detrimental. And I didn't understand why I was feeling so low. And for me, it started to link to mental health and nutrition and depriving my body of nutrients, um, you know, living my life actually not in the way that I wanted to. And it led me on this huge journey. Um, when I graduated, I set up a foundation called the BY Collective, which is a mental health organization. And we started pioneering in the fashion industry, talking about mental health. We signed for the first time all the UK modeling agencies to this foundation for the first time to start this mental health movement and conversation, as well as the British Fashion Council. And then from there, we expanded into creative industries. And then once COVID hit, the mental health conversation really started. And that's when we expanded throughout the UK. Um, and so, yeah, that's been my that's been my journey, really. So now, obviously, we have a podcast, we have the BY Collective, and um, yeah, I do a lot on the nutrition front as well. Very and I'm good. still linked to the fashion industry. So it's been a very unique journey. And I think one that served more for personal growth in the beginning. And then from there, realizing that this information actually is so important for everyone. And we really need to get the right information out there in a very saturated market. With the, because I've I've heard interviews with models and former models, and there can be massive positives to the industry, mm. and there can be also massive negatives. To the point of, I've heard one story from a very popular Irish model mm -hmm. that she was doing a photo shoot and came around to where the person, the photographer, was taking the photo on the screen, and he just chopped off half her leg so that she looked a certain way on the picture and she was kind of like this is me getting out of the industry how much of an impact did that kind of like when people are saying this is wrong with you mm. have an impact on you in general and then kind of like in later on kind of with but trying to build rapport with people or in relationships that kind of thing because mm. it obviously has a massive impact I have to say, like, I was always a really confident child. I mean, I remember my mum saying the first day of school, you were just so excited because all you wanted to do, you would hold everyone's hand and speak to every kid in that group. And then you wouldn't leave for school. You just wanted to be around people. So I think I'm a very sociable person. So for me, the industry suited me in so many different dimensions because I could, I wasn't scared. You know, when I left home, the excitement of moving to London and exploring. And then I went traveling on my own for like six months at 18. It was quite mad when I look back on it, but that was actually who I was. And I think there's a lot where I had quite thick skin quite early and there's only so much thick skin you can have to a degree, yeah. but I think you really do need to have a certain type of personality to be in this industry, because if you don't, it will break you. Um, and yeah, hearing these stories, it's horrific, but, I think when I was in that, in the moment, it didn't impact me that much because I think I just knew, I think I kind of had quite a lot of resilience naturally. But looking back in it now, I kind of go, oh my gosh, that must have really impacted me when I was younger. Why didn't I, I never acknowledge these comments that were coming through. But it wasn't just the comments to yourself, it was the comments, the competitiveness towards other people. So normally when you're growing up in, in, you know, university or in your groups and your peers, you're normally quite supportive of one another. Basically, we're all just competing against one another. So we're sharing these model apartments and we're analyzing, have you got this casting? Have you got this casting? Oh, you got that job. And then you're thinking, well, why didn't I get that job? And so you're constantly trying to analyze like what it is that's wrong about you. But 
you know, you can't actually change anything about yourself because that's how you look. And so you just have to get to this point where you have to accept that. And that's quite a hard moment to come to, I think. And many people sadly don't actually have the longevity in this career because of that reason, because it is, it's so hard on yourself. You've got to really say, actually, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm just not right for this at the moment. And it's when you get to that moment with yourself, that you can actually try to enjoy that. And you will always come up against people in this industry, in other industries that will judge you. And I think that's definitely something that I've taken on through my life. Looking back now, I'm always really aware of people's first perception of me. And it was definitely that reason when I transitioned and there's something that's probably I've taken from a young age of being a model, of going into the science industry. I was so worried that people would look at me as silly, as stupid, as just this pretty girl. They wouldn't take me seriously. That I worked so goddamn hard in my in my degree that when I graduated, I was within a year speaking in European Parliament. You know, I was like calling every professor that I wanted to work on their research. I had to work so hard to justify to myself I wasn't this stupid model. And it was this perception of this judgment. And it's interesting that that was obviously, I was so tough on myself that people would just actually not take me seriously and think I was not intelligent. But you actually push yourself so much harder. And I think that's something that's definitely affected me through like my work relationships and all of those things to really say, no, no, this is not the perception that you think I am. And now, after all of this time, I take a step back and I'm like, actually, I really now believe, you know, you have to judge somebody on, on actually the judgment you have on someone else is normally mirrored by your internal judgment. And so it's kind of been a learning development that I've come to. Actually, I don't need to prove myself. You know, I know that I'm an expert in X and I don't know everything, but I don't need to push myself to such a degree to let somebody see that. And that's just through my own personal development. So I guess we all have these, but that's something that I think the modeling industry has definitely had an impact on me on. Um, and I, yeah, I'm still growing. I'm still, still realizing that these early moments in my life have obviously had a huge impact, but we all have those, I guess. And I guess that's just one of mine. It's it's amazing to see, like, because I think you, you you mentioned the word resilience and I had a resilience expert, uh, Dr. Robin Hanley-Defoe, Mm. on the podcast and she has an amazing book out on resilience and she sp- speaks about that element of that it is probably you're probably born with it more than kind of like learned and it's interesting that you probably had that a little bit more ingrained but the bit that i found fascinating what you were talking about there was challenging that narrative challenging mm. that story and actually looking about that kind of projection onto others and that insecurities that we have about ourselves mm. and that links in with one of the questions that i sent over was in relation to the link between foods and how we actually see ourselves not often the food that's the issue it's how we see ourselves can you kind of go into that a little bit more detail oh yeah it's such a big area and it's something that I am fascinated in because especially when people come to see me in clinic I think some people well not some people I think everyone comes with I want an answer yeah. why am I overeating why am I under eating why am I addicted to sugar why am I doing all these things and it's not like there's a chemical imbalance there is so much emotion connected to food and an eating disorder, for example, if you take an eating disorder, some people would just say, well, that's obviously linked to anorexia nervosa or something like bulimia. It's more wanting to be thinner, but you can have an eating disorder and be overweight because you're still, 
addicted yeah. to eating. You you can't, you know, your emotional side is coming out and it's being so heavily linked to food. That is, again, in essence, an, another eating disorder. It isn't just one end of the spectrum. And so food plays such a large part in our day-to-day lives. And we also have to eat to live as well. So, you know, it's not just eating for fuel. It's connected to so many parts of us, to our culture, to our society, to our emotions. And so when we just try to actually give a straight line answer, whereas, well, if you do X, you will lose weight. It's really not that simple. It's so much more complex than that. And I think that's something that I'm really passionate about because so many times we read an article or hear somebody speak and we think, oh, well, if I follow this diet, I'm going to look like that. And it's that is never the case. There's so many other elements to your lifestyle and to how you're feeling mentally that impact those decisions. And then that leads to, oh, we have a lack of willpower or it leads to, oh, I'm really shameful about not being able to do that. And I feel very shameful and guilty about X. And it starts opening this whole can of worms. I mean, what each one of those topics could be a whole podcast. Oh, so much, yeah. And I just think looking back for me, you know, when I was looking at food when I was younger, it was more about trying to be the best version of myself but I was actually so nutrient deprived because I was trying to live by what I was shown on social media and by influencers and actually that was so detrimental for me and so it's this connection to one who what do we need for ourselves not just to live and to fuel but to feel good and when we think about our neurotransmitters we think about serotonin which is our happy hormone or dopamine and oxytocin which makes us feel really good they're made within our gut you know 90% of serotonin is actually made within our gut and then it crosses our blood brain barrier so people are always thinking well, how can i feel better and we're always focusing so heavily in our mental health and it was really interesting when i spoke to professor david nutt on my season, on this podcast um on my podcast sorry this season Well, when I asked him at the end, you know, what's something that he's changed his view on in the last 10 years? He said, I've been so focused on the brain in neuropharmacology and looking at drugs and looking at alternatives such as psychedelics. But actually, I'm looking at one area because so much about mental health starts within our guts. And so it's this expansive conversation where we've got to stop looking in separate components, not just in our body physically and biochemically, but also as our whole lifestyle. And so I think the thing about food is it plays, it executes in so many different areas. So if we are feeling low or we're looking at our lifestyle and that's impacting our food choices and that's probably due to where we live, but then also are we feeding our gut correctly? And it's it's just such a huge conversation that I could talk for a whole season about because I think mental health now is that, one of the highest poorest rates we've ever, we've really ever known. And then we're looking at our diet and we're also in, I don't use the word lightly, but in a, you know, an obesity, we're in a crisis with obesity and where we are currently in the world. And when we kind of start looking at all of these compounds, it's quite simple that they're impacting each other and they are so heavily tied. And so that's where, you know, I guess the conversation you start is is looking at oneself as an individual, not just at your diet, but your emotional state too, and trying to marry these concepts together. Do you think that enough is being done to sub I know the UK have taken massive strides, whether it's enough is a very different question and topic, but you guys have a minister for mental health, I think, over in the UK. Mm-hmm. Is it mm-hmm. Dr. Alex? 
I think. Yeah. We don't have Alex that George. Yeah. So we don't have that here. But do you think? And like I, the biggest thing I've definitely noticed over the kind of like the last two and a half, three years or whatever, how long ever COVID's been around, you forget how long went life beforehand. But I know. It's, it's mad. It's like, <laughs> Lost what, track ha- time. What, what happened beforehand? <laughs> uh, so one of the biggest things I've noticed anyway is that the insecurities around food and insecurities around ourselves as individuals have been heightened to next level because there hasn't been enough support or people haven't been shown to actually deal with their emotions on a, on a regular basis. Do you think that's going to change anytime soon? Or do you think that that's going to take a few generations to sort out? I think it's a few generations to sort out. I think it's a, I think it's a continuous conversation. So if we look how far we've come in the last 10 years, I mean, I, even when I started looking at nutrition 10 years ago, I mean, how we're looking at it now, we're now just starting to understand the importance of food. In the last few years, we're starting to understand the importance of our mental health. Mental health is still so heavily stigmatized. And emotions is such an interesting thing. Like In my clinic, I show my clients the will of emotion. And it has your five kind of main emotions. And then outside, it's got more emotions and more emotions. And they're all linked. And people start analyzing and go, well, I didn't realize that emotion was actually linked to this emotion. And I didn't realize that if I felt that, this meant this. And it's one of those things that when we're at school, we're never actually taught to analyze our emotions. And there was a study done, and I can't remember, and I have to find it, and I can cite it for you. I read this week. No, it was Bernie Brown, that was it. So Bernie Brown did a research study, and she wanted to find people who could see if they could actually express their emotions. And I can't tell you what the population group was, that she, how many people she analyzed, but the majority could only ever express three emotions. So she was saying, I want you to journal all the things that you're feeling, all the, all the emotions you're going through in the next week. And people were basically saying sad, happy, and angry. Yeah. And it's such a small narrative to be able to actually explain how you feel. And if you think about it, going back to school, you're never, you're never spoken about emotions. You're never talked about how to express yourself and having a language to be able to express yourself to actually say how you're feeling is so important for just self-reflection for only your relationship with self and then relationships to others because if you can't you meet this huge barrier of frustration and so within you know within my clinic it's so important for me not just to express one's relationship with food but to also express why and with oneself, all of these dimensions play such a big part in the choices that we make and the decisions that we make through our day and through our lives and in our relationships, and they impact hugely. And I think we need to really start trying to understand our emotions much more. We can probably say, oh, I feel happy or I feel sad, but emotions are so much more complex. And um, Especially when we talk about anger, we talk about anger in a quite, you know, detrimental way like oh I you know felt sorry I lost my temper there but actually anger is not a bad emotion at all but we are categorizing emotions and then we're kind of giving ourselves another emotion which is shame because we feel angry and we shouldn't we shouldn't be in these cycles and so I think for change to actually happen it needs to start from childhood it needs to start from parents being able to express this to the children to be able to get children to understand their emotions conversations at school in workplaces 
and be very surprised for any people in workplaces who can actually speak about their emotions quite freely without stigma. And I think, you know, we're, we're shunned away from them so many times within our, within our day-to-day lives. Um, and so I think it will take quite a few generations for that to change, but I do think it is changing. The fact I mean, that we're having this conversation now is. is yeah. Crazy. And I, I had uh, an amazing guy called Josh Connolly on, and he's, he's a guy based out in the UK and he, he talks about kind of emotional avoidance mm. and he talks about the whole thing of his childhood and he's had a, an amazing story. So if anyone hasn't listened to that episode, I highly recommend it. But he, he talks about that we haven't been taught as a kid how to actually deal with things, how to actually speak about things. We haven't got that safe place or mm. safe haven to actually, well, how are you actually feeling? And as you said, it's those three or four terms that keep coming up. I see it with clients on a daily basis. They, they don't know how to verbalize it. And then you bring out that wheel that you've spoken about with the clients. They're kind of like, oh, this is what I'm, it's like, you're not feeling guilty. Shame is the over, under, there's the overlying hanging fruit over that. It's not guilt that you're feeling. Yeah. Because guilty is, I feel bad that that's happened. So yeah. it's like, you feel bad that you've let someone down. Okay. I can, I can understand that. Shame is like, I am bad. Yeah. Shame is I'm a bad person. You're not a bad person because you were late or you couldn't turn up. You feel guilty for that. That's a different emotion. But shame is like, I am bad. I'm a bad person. And that's a really detrimental headspace to get into. That's it's hard really, to get out as well. It's really hard. I mean, I guess for you as a man, you know, how is how do you feel about that? How is that is that a conversation that 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 you even feel comfortable expressing with with friends? Or I mean, I, it's a different. I think even think from from a man's point of view, a male's perspective, than it is from a woman's. My story is a little bit before 2017. I would say I didn't know what emotion was. But then I had my mental health scare in 2017 to like, if you're, uh, whoever isn't aware and Sarah Ann isn't aware of the story, I got really sick. I got two blood clots in my left arm and they couldn't find them for ages. And I got fluid on my lungs. And then I got a uh, situational depression and I got to the point of, I ordered tablets, sleeping tablets from America. So, and they were like, I was a week like away. Xanax. Basically. Yeah. Um, and I was one week away from doing something very, very silly. And I heard a sentence of stop caring what other people think. And that made me go ring my dad and say, right, I need help. And then he opened up to me about his mental health issues. And I was like, right, you put your father up on his pedestal of their Superman. So if he can have mental health issues and if he can open up and have these struggles, well, then that makes it okay in relation to go and actually go and talk to someone and that like if i hadn't spoken to someone i've had that safe place and the person i went to um was very no nonsense and mm. that's probably what i needed i didn't need i didn't need an armor on shoulder i needed a list i needed a tough love approach that mm. may not work from other people but that worked for me and mm. turns out she was actually from the fitness industry she used to compete and stuff like that so a lot of the stuff for me was how I looked, how I felt, uh, the kind of like trying to be, I was lost and I didn't know what I wanted to do for a living and stuff like that. So mm. I was kind of lost in that. But if I hadn't had that, I wouldn't be able to have those open conversations with my mates. My mates know now that if I go say quiet for three or four days, I get a text guaranteed. Like I literally got a text mm. this morning. Amazing. That's it's, so it's so important. And it's those checking in moments, but it's even that, I can imagine that fear of calling your dad because you probably felt like I'm a failure or, you know, you're having so much shame in yourself in that moment. And it takes so much courage, like the courage around that. 
I think is the, the biggest step of courage you can ever make. But then you can have this deeper connection with your father who probably also had a deeper connection with you at that point because he yeah. was then showing this massive amount of vulnerability to you. And, and that is such a deeper form of connection where I think so many times we can live on this kind of hot, like surface level of connection with people because we're not always feel ashamed of opening that deeper level. But when we do, we realize that we're all going through it. And it's something that is like, thank you so much for sharing that with me because I think if we don't talk about it, somebody else might listen to this podcast and that could save somebody's life from just opening up this conversation. But we talk about like mental health illness and I have a really problematic term with that because we all have a brain, it is an organ and it needs to function. If we hit our liver with alcohol, it's going to start failing at some point. It's going to start having problems, physical problems. Our brain, if we don't help it, if we don't look after it, it's going to start having problems. And it's those things. It doesn't always have to be a mental health illness forever. I think we all suffer with mental health. We all do. Every single person probably listening to this podcast at some point in their life has suffered with mental health. It doesn't mean that you have a mental health illness. It doesn't mean you have a mental health disease. It's like if you break your arm, you're then not paralyzed, but you go through trauma and it needs to heal and you have to take care of it and you have to be aware of it. But for some, for some reason, when we get to our brains, it's this disease, it's this illness. It's something that none of us, no, no one else, we really want to know about. But we but we all have a brain, it's an organ, and we all suffer. And I think that's such an important terminology that we just need to reframe that narrative slightly so that we feel that it's a much more open conversation, like breaking your arm. Do you think, because I think we live in a culture that we don't want to be labeled, mm. but we're very quick to label us. I literally had this conversation with my girlfriend this morning about something else, something completely random, completely mm. off topic. And we were talking about this and it kind of just intrigued me a little bit. That's kind of latched around to this conversation this morning of like, we're mm. very, we don't like to be labeled by certain things. And then we're very quick to pigeonhole ourselves into like, oh, I've got mental health issues or whatever, maybe, or I don't know, label yourself as Caucasian or a certain race or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. How, like, has that been molded for us or is that just an easy way to like stay safe and not be vulnerable? I think it's both. I think you normally make a judgment within three to five seconds of meeting yeah. someone. So already I'm like, so Shane is X, 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 X. And you're like, Sarah is X, 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 X. Before I've really even told you my story. And it's interesting. We have this kind of like flip narrative where we're like, we kind of know this person already. It's something that we're inherently just I guess it's just nature. That's just us assessing a threat risk of, is Shane going to be a threat to me? It's that immediate. And if it is, I'm going to put my barriers straight up. And it's interesting because we can do this with the judgment of somebody very quickly, but we can also do this with labeling oneself. So saying somebody is that, oh, I'm, um, I'm a vegan. Already, you've made a judgment of probably who I am, what I do. Funnily enough, everyone thinks I'm a vegan because I'm a model and a nutritionist. I'm not a vegan. I've never said in my life I'm a vegan, but for some reason, everyone thinks I'm a vegan. And it's just this kind of like innate impression that I obviously give off, even though all I talk about is omega-3s and the importance of fatty fish, because that's been my research for 10 years. People still have this innate stereotypical view that I'm plant-based. And it's it's such a small thing to reference. But again, it's just, just this constant judgment. 
And I think it's a way of one making oneself feel safe and being able to specify and box that person quite quickly um, into who they are. But I think we need to massively move away from it. I think we all need to start questioning ourselves as why does this matter and what's important? And actually, whenever you meet somebody, they are not going to open up their box to you straight away. That is trust that takes time. And so I always think the immediate judgment I have of somebody is going to change because that person is not going to be the same when I meet them five, 10 times later, because they're going to open up. They're going to express so much more to me as a person. So it's just interesting. It's a safe way in society we can make quick judgments. Um, but it's definitely not one that I think is is one that we should actually be taking by face value. Have you read uh, Naomi Klein's book, uh, I think, Knuckle No Logo? No. So basically what's happened is the corporate, like what Naomi has said in the book essentially is that Naomi, uh, that the, the corporations have kind of got these people who like are kind of culture shapers mm. in that they're looking for kind of cool finders or, or whatever it may be and kind of looking for like kids to be certain brands are looking for kids to wear their clothes and it's so that they can be buy those for the rest of their lives because they're like if they're if they're cool the clothes are cool so calvin klein puts them on the on the kids or whatever maybe for an example of a brand and that's going to be molded down that they're associated with that brand that they're going to be looking like that's associated with cool because then they, they're ultimately labeled as cool Mm. already so it's coming from it's kind of it can be stemming from kind of like the corporations and the logos and that side of things that mm. if you look at someone who's potentially wearing i don't know nike or something like that you're like oh they're sporty or mm -hmm. you're looking at someone who's wearing burberry that could be something cool in one country but it could be seen as another demographic in a different country completely um, so like it, 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 it's, it's interesting to hear from that point of view of like, it could have been culture shaped by corporations. Obviously that's Naomi Klein's opinion, but it's, it's an interesting concept. And it's just fresh in my head that the fact that we're talking about the, like, that's why I had that conversation this morning. You mentioned, I think, uh, go on. I think it's also one of those things that when we, I don't think we sometimes often realize how much is infiltrating our brains on a day-to-day -day basis. Even by the time we've woken up in the first half an hour, if we've opened our phone, if we've opened yeah. TikTok, Instagram, BBC News, whatever it is that we're looking at, we're infiltrated by so much. Then we walk down the street, then we're infiltrated by so much advertising. We're constantly bombarded by messaging, subliminal messaging. But if I say to someone, can you remember people that you were passing the street yesterday? You'd say no. But it's those things where we're like, it's the subconscious. And we have taken so much into our brains that we're actually not aware of how much is infiltrating us day to day. And it's that that I'm always quite fascinated by, especially when somebody feels quite ashamed of maybe doing something in public where they feel maybe a bit ashamed of doing something or they've, they've made a fool of themselves and they think, oh, I'm really worried about the judgment that others are giving me. But if you think about how many times you've walked past somebody and they maybe done something quite crazy in the street or shouted or been crying or whatever, you've probably forgotten that person 10 minutes later. You won't remember them. Yeah. But it's interesting that for us, it plays such a big part in our minds and we analyze that and we're so worried about other people's judgment and perceivement. And so it's just this trickery of our minds that it plays all the time and in so many different ways. And so again, definitely one is culture shaper hugely, but it's also peers, it's your family, it's how you're brought up. It's things that you feel are important to you. All of these concepts play say, such a large part. 
And it's interesting the, the the whole thing of kind of when you you, you meet someone, it's like three to five seconds, and mm. if you're walking past someone, you, you like, I know you, I can hear comments in from from friends or family or whatever it might be, and maybe a generational thing of potentially if someone is overweight, that comment may come and say, well, that could be just due to oh they're they've no willpower no motivation why do they look like that that's not what the case is it's very quick to tarnish people don't understand the obesity crisis that's going on at the minute it's not due to lack of willpower it's not due to lack of trying it's potentially it 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 definitely is deep rooted in some some element of lack of self-compassion self-esteem loads of different things can be at play and yeah crikey we walk into a supermarket and two-thirds of our shopping baskets are full of processed ultra processed foods because that's all we are around and so it's kind of like we're wondering why we're in this obesity epidemic but the food that we're offering people is such poor choices such limited choices even though we think our supermarkets are huge most of them are just bombarded with ultra processed foods i couldn't tell you that you walk into supermarket and it's all just whole foods like it's not and so that's the first barrier. It's like we're not even around these choices, even though we think we are. They're so elitist in, in that sector. And so it's like that's even just the first part. Then it's time, convenience. Who has time to go and cook an hour's meal every day? Not many people. We don't have that privilege. So many barriers to, to all of these things that we then just go, oh, well, that person lacks motivation. And that is such an, a, a narrow-minded point of view. Um, and that is definitely not the case. Yeah, I think I think the education is definitely kind of improving, but I think it's going to take a long time to kind of. Mm-hmm. I, I can't see it changing anytime soon. Unfortunately, I, I'm genuinely scared for the next kind of couple of generations in relation mm-hmm. to the choices. As like, if you walk into a shop, like if you're out, say driving, like you're going, you're going away soon, and you're out driving mm-hmm. your car, and you're stopping off at like petrol stations to get snacks, mm-hmm. your choices are limited. Like you may think that like, oh, I'm I'm just gonna get like a sandwich or something like that. But you're also potentially even on the way to the till, you've got wraps around, you've got your wrapping around in a queue, and you've got bars, loads of different things around you. It's it, it it's everywhere. Like that corporate ideology of like and I know companies are kind of trying to make all these bars more protein. And if you actually read the label. Oh, it's kind of like wow. there's like three grams in them and the four grams in them, but most people don't understand how to read a, um, a nutrition eat, label. We don't need protein bars full of additional chemicals and additives and caffeine if we can just go and have two boiled eggs for a limited price of what that is. We, we don't need, egg, unless you're trained to, to, and you'll know this, the average person doesn't need a protein bar on the day and it's just got all additional sugar in it. Caffeine. chocolate bar. Exactly. This is a thing. And it's so nutri- you know, there's not there's no nutrients in that. It's so heavily processed, but they're marketed as health foods, and that's my real bugbear. Um, my real bugbear is is one of them. It's, it's like the um, cereal bars as well, and like people are gonna latch onto this like that. These are bad foods. Like there's no foods that are bad. It's just like mm. everything in moderation. Like if you're relying on pro- if you're relying on a protein bar for your protein every single day, I probably wouldn't advise it. It's not the come- most amazing quality protein anyway you'd probably become more in the obesity spectrum because you would be increasing your calories um, and your energy. Basically, let's take away calories. I hate that word, but we're increasing our energy consumption, but we would be becoming more nutrient deprived because we're not eating any whole foods. And so, you know, 
broccoli never gets advertised and tin chickpeas never get advertised because manufacturers can't make money from them. They're not products that they're making. Plants never get advertised. Plants are getting advertised. But, you know, cornflakes, which I had this really interesting um, conversation with Dr. Sarah Berry, who's head of nutritional sciences at King's College, saying that these are advertised cornflakes to kids. This is quite crazy. They're a complete processed food, but they've got added iron, added calcium, all these additives that are added back in. I've had real food, wouldn't need it to be added in. But it's not actually the right iron for absorption. It's like iron flakes that is in, in the cornflakes. So if you act, you can do this at home, and I can't remember how she should put it in some water. Um, and you could actually see the iron raised to the top. And it's like, that is not bioavailable. Like, we cannot absorb that. That is a completely different form of iron. But we're saying to kids where development is so important, added iron, adding calcium, adding vitamin D. Well, iron's not even, it's metal. It's not even like, the. it's not even absorption that we can have. So, you know, it's, it's so heavily processed. And I think that's the problem. And again, not labeling it bad, but it's not labeling. I don't think actually we should label it as food because <laughs> it's, it's not. Um, and I think that's where this mixed messaging comes in. Yeah. Like, yeah, I think that like there's so many of that that could be like a whole series. Like I think I know. the willpower one is one that I, I love to go down and I've kind of covered mm. a few times on the podcast, but I, I and the, the shame and the guilt part being vulnerable. Like there's so much in there. I haven't stuck to any of the questions I sent you over. I keep <laughs> doing that. I really keep doing that. I did this on Anthony's. I feel like I boycott. <laughs> I think it's an Irish thing. We don't like to be chat. We don't like to be ruled by questions. Um, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find out about your podcast? Where can people find out about your work? And uh, but thank you so much for coming on. Uh, thank you so much. It was such a, a, a lovely conversation, and thank you so much for honoured to be on. Um, but you can find me on for the podcast. It's called Live Well, Be Well, and it's on all the streaming platforms. We actually have our videos on Spotify as well. If you want to go and watch them, you can watch the videos there, or you can watch them on YouTube, which is Be Well Collective. Um, Instagram, it's at Sarah and Macklin, um, and that's the same for my website. And the Be Well Collective website is www.bewellcollective.com. I would highly recommend people to listen to uh, the Live Well, Be Well podcast. Like, there's some amazing guests and they're, they're from various different backgrounds, but like, I'm just 100% going to the, to the Dr. Barry one right now yeah, on, the, on the walk to kind of listen to him and maybe even get her on. So thank you so much for, for coming on, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me.